From the virtual headquarters of the MZ Studios in Dallas, this is Deconstructing Dallas. Greetings, everyone. This is your co-host, Ryan Trimble, coming to you once again in cyberspace. Joined today by a man who never forgets to call one of our best listeners and uh, one of the people that matters most to him in the world. That is his mother. He, of course, Sean Williams. Sean, good day, sir. Hey, Ryan, good day, man. Um, it is, we are one day removed. We don't like to date our episodes if we can help it, but we are one day removed from Mother's Day. So we would be remiss if in retrospect and belatedly, if we did not wish all the mothers, including our own, a happy Mother's Day. Yeah, especially since they're our most loyal listeners, as uh, anybody on this that's listened to the show knows. When you talk about from been there from the beginning, obviously for both of <laughs> us, but from the beginning of our show, they were our, our first probably test cases, our first listeners, the first people to give us feedback. Uh, and I just wanted to say for sure to my mom, Linda Williams, happy Mother's Day. And also, uh, I guess I don't, I don't know if I've seen your mom since we did that that walk, that 5K walk or the 1K walk, whatever we did. Women's League, yeah, Junior Women's League. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny. I was I was looking on our Deconstructing Dallas Facebook page the other day, and feel free to follow us on Facebook, uh, everybody out there. Um, but I was noticing that one Linda Williams had commented, and I it just made me feel all warm and cozy because she commented on some of our pictures like this is a great show thank you for producing such an outstanding show so you can always count on mom to uh give you to some be totally unbiased <laughs> yes yes precisely sean um so yeah we um we we are into our second show uh, virtually and we have a, a, a wonderful, outstanding, amazing guest coming up. But before we get to that, man, I was just struck because uh, just r- literally over the weekend, we've had some major losses in uh, in the world of entertainment for sure. And just in R&B and music, we lost Little Richard, who some called the inventor of rock and roll. Others, he, he said he's the proclaimed himself the architect of rock and roll. We lost Betty Wright, who had... Hits like No Pain, No Gain, The Clean Up Woman. Andre Harrell, the founder of Uptown Records, he was a mentor for P. Diddy. And, and just this morning, Jerry Stiller uh, from my all-time favorite TV show, Seinfeld, passed. And, man, I, I have, like, his one-liners, the Boca Vista, Serenity Now, but even Festivus is a holiday that we have celebrated here I don't know, for years and years. So just, you know, major losses in the world of entertainment that I feel like I need to, to give a shout out to. Man, I mean, Little Richard. I mean, th- these are songs that, that guy, unbelievable. I mean, those are songs that are just like, you know how everybody calls tissue Kleenex? I mean, those, it's kind of like in the fabric of our society, his songs. Good golly, Miss Molly, Sean. I mean, come on. These are classics. So, yeah, fruity, I mean, it, 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 like, yeah, that's the word, classics. And, you know, he toiled in his craft, uh, doing a lot of concerts. And there are a lot of other people who got credit uh, for rock and roll before he was really given his due. But I think America finally came to realize just what he meant. Uh, and great hair. <laughs> Always great hair. 
just always had the look, man. He always had the look. Just an original. You talk about an original. I mean, Little Richard is that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Sean, you teased it a second ago. We do have a great guest coming on the show. He, of course, is the former mayor of Dallas, the first African-American mayor of Dallas, and the former U.S. trade representative. He is one Ron Kirk, the Honorable Ron Kirk. Yeah, I, I my uh, memories of of Ambassador Kirk go way back. Just you know, I was in college when he was elected mayor of Dallas, and I just remember you know reading the paper, and I think I still even have it. But reading the paper uh, when he was elected, and, and just being inspired um, sure. in College Station and being from Paris, just really was always inspired. And, and now that we get to know him and see him from time to time, it's it's great, and I'm so thankful that he agreed to to join our podcast yeah i first got to know uh the ambassador when when uh i was working for chairman branch of course but um one of my best memories of um uh, ambassador kirk was during a mayor rawlings reelect photo shoot he met us down at a barbershop in southern dallas uh down by fair park and uh sat in the barber chair and took pictures with Mayor Rawlings, who was also sitting in a barber chair. They were yucking it up, but it was really a, a fun. Uh, just you know, it was a. It showed that he was supportive of, you know, the city's leaders, which I think you need. I think you need these guys to be supportive of each other. Uh, you know, men and women that have sat in that chair um, when they when they support you, I think it makes your job a whole heck of a lot easier in whatever executive position you're in. So, uh, and I that believe was, that we have that picture in our office. Yeah. Yeah, we do. I walk by it a lot when I'm going to get snacks. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. Since we we found out that he was going to be part of, of the podcast, I've been yeah. eagerly anticipating. I'm, I can't wait for some of the hard-hitting questions that I'm sure you're going to ask when we get oh, to, yeah. uh, to speak to. You, to you know what I, mean, hard I know hitting. how you do it. I know that. <laughs> So, well, let's uh, let's jump right into our interview with the ambassador after this quick break. This is Deconstructing Dallas. Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams, stick with us. Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. Sean, very excited to welcome our guest today. Uh, he, of course, the former mayor of Dallas, the former U.S. trade representative, the great, the honorable Ron Kirk. Mayor, ambassador, welcome to Man, the show. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for, for having me. This sounds like the old days with the tickets. All we're missing is the flowing robes. I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> but well, uh, we, we can find that. We can we can go back. I know some no, of those guys. No, so we'll no, no. To. Sean, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean, I'm excited uh, to welcome the ambassador today. You know, I, I first got to got to meet him and know him when I was working for uh, for you know former representative Dan Branch, of course. But uh, 
speaking of, of Austin people, you are an Austin guy. How did you get to Dallas, Ambassador? Well, I grew up, I um, am 65 years old, so I'm one of those, um, I'm um, old enough uh, to have all those honorifics you referred to, but also be what I define as one of the test tube kids of the civil rights movement. Because um, when I was born in 1954, Austin uh, was a segregated city. Uh, now, you can argue that it played out perhaps a little differently, you know, in a, in a school with a big influential institution like the University of Texas. Uh, but we were, you know, my siblings and I were among the first generation to integrate public schools and, and um, have the chance to do all those things our parents dreamed of. Uh, but at least growing up, there was frankly no love loss between <laughs> between the black community and UT because you, you know it was well into the fifties before UT admitted people of color. So one, yeah. I wanted to get away, and um, so I and uh, but separately also knew I wanted liberal arts, so I chose to go to Austin College, uh, which is up in Sherman, Texas, just north of here. It's a fabulous institution, uh, but at the time the socially was. Right. Was a little bit depraved. So if you go to Austin College, it doesn't take you but a couple of weekends to figure out where everybody disappears to on the weekends, and it was <laughs> Dallas. So after law school, I made the decision I wanted to make Dallas. That's where I wanted to start my practice. And so so after that decision, you know, last uh, week, we, we all celebrated the 25-year anniversary of your election as mayor of Dallas. And uh, you know, it was exciting for our firm who had an opportunity to work on that campaign. But, um, you know, what are your reflections looking back on that election? Well, it's a little bit tempered by the current events. And, and, and you know, and I'll do it. I'm proud to reflect on my time as mayor. I think all of us would be, feel a little bit remiss if we didn't acknowledge we are just living in times that none of us could have ever imagined because of this pandemic. So one, I hope that anyone that, that chooses to, to listen to this thing is safe and well and that you and your loved ones are well. Uh, but then secondly, and you heard Ryan um, mention the fact that he worked with Allen Media. It was a little sobered for us uh, because we were missing my, my just incredible friend, uh, but cohort, my campaign manager, Carol Reed, who passed away from, from um, pancreatic cancer last fall. Uh, so we had a subdued celebration, but but it was it was the most fun for me. Sean was we were you know have separately just going through our attic and trying to get rid of stuff and you know make busy work while we're all stuck at home. And so the girls found a box with all of the newspaper articles and clippings, and I always talk about the fact that how young we were. But Catherine and Alex were only six and three years old. And the most comical thing for me has been watching Alex read all of my campaign articles and news materials now from a very different perspective. But um, but it was a moment that I'm proud of, and I'd like to think, you know, at the end of the day, more importantly, I did what I said in my inauguration speech that I, you know, didn't set out to make history. I just want to make a difference in our city. So. Mayor, was was there one uh, moment that stuck out to you of those uh, during your tenure as mayor that uh, that you're most proud of? No, and I, you know, one thing I always shared with Matrice that I think success and life is made up of many moments. 
you know, the joy is in those unexpected moments. And it's, you know, and, and I think most people will understand. I always sort of hate to get that question because that's like saying, Mayor, I know you've got six kids, but is there one that's more special than the other? <laughs> you know, I mean, I am proud more than anything that I think, uh, whether people think I was a good mayor or a bad mayor or agreed with, or agreed with everything we did, most people would agree at the time I came into office. Um, there just was not much expectation among the public that anything good was going to come out of City Hall because of all the infighting. I mean, we were just, we were our own worst enemy. Uh, and whether it is, uh, whether, you know, looking back in terms of your question, if it was one thing, I don't believe we would have been able to accomplish anything. We wouldn't have been able to, you know, construct a new performing arts center in the American Airlines Center or past the Trinity River or any of the other things had we had we not been successful in changing the culture at City Hall. So if if I have to say it was one thing, it was convincing the council that we just had to stop being our own worst enemy. Uh that we could have disagreements, uh we could feel very strongly about issues. Uh, but one of my rules was that you can say anything to anybody you want in my office in private. But when we're at the horseshoe, we're going to be more efficient. We're going to be more civil. And we're going to try and focus on those commonalities that, that bind us all, that, that you know, sort of transcended race or ideology, uh, like the fact that we needed to start bringing jobs back into the city. We had to do a better job of basic city services. And once we started doing that, I think that laid the foundation for us to uh, go forward and do some of the bigger projects that I'm associated with. And we've we've seen a lot of the fruits of, of your labor from, from that time, you and your colleagues and the work that you did. And you've had an opportunity to go off and do other things, but you're still here with us in Dallas. So how have you seen the city change over these last 25 years? And what do you think are the opportunities for Dallas moving forward? Well, one of the things that I that I that humbled me when I was mayor was that so much of what we bragged on uh, that made Dallas the dynamic city it was, the fact that, you know, DFW Airport was was and still is the biggest driver of our economy. Uh that, you know, the things that citizens don't worry about. Nobody ever worried about whether we were going to run out of water or whether we'd have <laughs> Well, those were tough decisions made by mayors and councils decades ago. And so what I saw as our challenge is what, what seeds could we plant then in 95 that would bear fruit later? And I will tell you, when I drive around the city and I look at the, 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 the entire American Airlines Center and the Victory Complex, when I look at those Collatropper bridges, which everybody thought we were nuts for investing in, but see the almost immediate impact that it's made in parts of West Dallas. Uh, in Oak Cliff that, that a lot of people in Dallas would have never visited. Uh, when I look at still the potential of, uh, transforming the Trinity River into, you know, our urban oasis or the University of North Texas in Dallas or Mockingbird Station, all of those things, um, it didn't just happen overnight. Uh, but you look at the arts district now and Woodall Rogers Deck Park, they have absolutely transformed not only the way we think about downtown, but the way people relate to downtown. And, um, I, you know, one, one of the challenges of the, of our form of government with the mayor being one of 14, 
uh, is I had to embrace the reality. If the mayor wasn't focused on those sort of big picture vision things, they just weren't going to happen because you have 14 members of the city council uh, that are dealing with, you know, cleaning up the parts and picking up the trash and potholes. And I'm not saying that's not important. That's critically important. But the mayor, somebody has to step back and say, what do we want to be as a city? And so I think we've addressed a lot of the physical infrastructure. Uh, I believe what frustrates us now, and, and Mayor Johnson has articulated it well, is we've just got to find a way to have a more equitable uh, distribution of the incredible economic benefits that flow from this city. Uh, and it and it hurts. It still bothers me that if you were to go you know, have lunch in, in any of those tall buildings in downtown Dallas uh, and look at the, just look at the stark difference in development and economic activity north and south of the Trinity River. Uh, that that change cannot happen quickly enough. And so I'd say our, our challenge is now beyond getting past, you know, the public health um, issues related to beating this pandemic, but our longer term challenges or Dallas has to finally embrace the extraordinary underused and undervalued potential of the almost half million of our citizens who live south and west of the Trinity River. Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. We're visiting with former U.S. Trade Ambassador Ron Kirk. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about his time uh, in the administration, in the Obama administration. Let's get into that right after this break. Welcome back. This is Deconstructing Dallas, Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. We are fortunate enough to be speaking with former U.S. Trade Representative and former Dallas Mayor Ron Kirk. Uh, Ambassador, I, I had an opportunity to, to see your wife, Matrice, uh, at the Winspear Opera House, engaged in a conversation with uh, first former First Lady Michelle Obama during her tour. And there, the camaraderie the familiarity was on display. You could tell how much uh, they knew each other, respected each other, had a regard for each other. And it, it just made me want to ask you about two things re related to specifically President Obama. That is, when was the first time you met President Obama? And then can you talk about the relationship personally that you've had with the family? Sure. You know, well, ironically, Ryan, uh, as we transition from, from my 10 years mayor to to my time in the administration, um, you, you may, I think you both know that um, as I got the uh, crazy idea in 2001 <laughs> that the way to resurrect uh, the Democratic Party in Texas is to run a black man for the United States Senate while George Bush was sitting in the White House. <laughs> and while I ran the Democrat, I won the Democratic nomination, and it was just a, an experience of a lifetime to travel this state and understand how much we are the same and how much we are different. 
Um, but um, I was in Chicago for a fundraiser after I won the Democratic nomination um, because it's, it is so just numbingly um, and unexplainably expensive to run a statewide campaign in a state as big as Texas. Um, but this skinny young state senator uh, from Illinois came to my event and followed me out and followed me on the elevator and ex- shared with me that he had hoped to run for the U.S. Senate someday, uh, but was frankly more curious about how I had convinced my wife, Matrice, to let me run for mayor with a six and a three-year-old at home. And I was one flattered. He knew that. But then obviously that was a point in his relationship that Sasha and Malia were not much older than Alex and Catherine. And so we just, you know, it, it literally was an elevator conversation. But two years later, he ran for the United States Senate. A number of people who worked on my Senate campaign uh, went to work for then-Senator Obama, uh, including Robert Gibbs, who later became his press secretary. But anyway, I brought him. I was impressed uh, by his earnestness, um, really impressed by his him that just said this kid was special. So anyway, I brought him to Texas. We did a couple of fundraisers for him. And then we just stayed friends. And but, but we talked more about how to balance our love for public service with the need to be, you know, a responsible husband and father. Uh, and so once he obviously won that Senate race and ascended to the presidency, uh, one of the most rewarding aspects of my service in the administration is having Matrice get to know Michelle, you know, just beyond the, oh, you're the cabinet wife, I'm the first lady. And they bonded around the fact that Michelle was as curious as then Senator Obama was to how Matrice handled all that. Uh, and so we have, as those who attended um, either of the two um, conversations Michelle hosted, that Matrice hosted with Michelle. Uh, that is a very real and deep friendship. And so that's that's been fun for us. And we still see them, um, you know, three or four times a year. We, we A small group of us tries to get together for dinner. And um, Matrice, it's, anyone has watched a becoming documentary, um, if you look closely at a couple of the scenes, you'll see uh, Matrice was in there because she traveled with Ma- uh, Michelle on part of the tour. Uh, and I still um, do a couple of golf outings with the president. So uh, it's been nice. Um, I mean, it was the, the honor of a lifetime to serve my country and serve a president that I so respect and admire. Uh, but it's also been just great fun getting to develop a friendship with them. Now, Ambassador, during your time working for uh, President Obama, you you had a lot of wins as uh, as the uh, trade representative in China, focusing on intellectual property. Tell us about some of your, your your biggest wins and your biggest successes there. Well, my biggest challenge was being a, a pro trade Democrat, and you, you know the, the 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 enmity that we and and the the manner in which the current uh, occupant of the White House speaks about trade didn't just start with President Trump. Uh, our biggest challenge was that Americans, I think, um, whether whether rooted in fact or not, but Americans have become have come to equate free trade 
what our swapping jobs for cheaper iPhones and laptops and T-shirts. Um, and our biggest challenge was to get Americans to understand that the United States, you know, decades ago wisely was a part of creating a rules-based global trading system. Part of that was used as a response to uh, having an economic um, um, relationship with many countries we had previously been at war with in either World War One or World War Two, But it, now it's getting Americans to realize that we're less than 5% of the world's consumers. And we have built a world and that people very much envy the lifestyle that young people live in this country. And the words made in America really are the most treasured brand in the world. And in a world in which you've got billions of people in Asia and Latin America and Africa that want to transition to a more robust lifestyle, that's a world we can compete and win, but we've got to be engaged. And we have to be willing to structure a trade policy that promotes our interests, gives us access to those countries' markets as freely as we've given them ours over the last 50 years. And if you do that and you structure it that way, I think most Americans get it because we don't uh, we will just not have uh, the kind of economy we want our kids to inherit if we have this insular, singular-focused economy just based on what Americans produce and consume. Because people all over the world would rather have food, products, services, goods, technology that they know was made under the standards that we make. We're talking to former U.S. Trade Representative, former Dallas Mayor Ron Kirk, uh, Ambassador, a few weeks ago, I know that you worked on the BET Network uh, COVID-19 relief event, and we talked a little bit earlier about the pandemic and, and the time we we're finding ourselves in. It was the Saving Ourselves event. Can you talk about that effort and, and some of the biggest takeaways that you had being so close to uh, some uh, some relief re- related to the pandemic? Well, first... Um Again, this this pandemic has sort of ripped the veneer off the reality that the way people who wake up every day and go to work in many service jobs that don't may or may not have access to health care, that are dependent on public transportation, um, that make sure that we get our mail de- delivered every day or that make sure that we are safe when we go to our hospitals or when we go to the grocery store. Um, Those tend to be careers and jobs overpopulated with people of color, whether they are African-American or Hispanic or other immigrants. And and we have been disproportionately impacted uh, by this horrible disease. And I'm sure everyone's seen all of the statistics that in all the major cities, particularly New York, Chicago, New Orleans, Dallas, the number of people infected and the number of people dying are disproportionately um, African-American and Hispanic. So the effort on BET was started by just a wide, a broad coalition of, of, of African-American and black leaders around the country and spearheaded by Debbie Lee at, the, at BET to raise money to target um, relief, particularly for those uh, most hard-hit cities like New Orleans, Chicago, New York, and others, uh, Atlanta, where African-Americans are being impacted. The goal was to raise 17, I mean, $10 million. We ended up, I think, raising north of 18, but there's still more to be done. 
uh, and I can't help but note that I just find it unconscionable knowing that, you know, um, single moms, working people uh, who are being, you know, who disproportionately work in the service industries are having, having the, the double hit of being in careers that expose them to this job or not having their job. Uh, that we could now have a president that says, oh, I'd like to do away with health care for Americans. That is absolutely absurd. And I I hope coming out of this, we can depoliticize the debate about how we provide health care and whether it's public or private and understand that it is critical. And we are all safer when every American uh, has access to safe and affordable health care. Ambassador, I was looking back through my news clips, and and uh, I believe it was the week that that we had the stay at home order go in place. You had a you had an op ed in the Dallas Morning News uh, talking about the importance of investing in in U.S. Uh, diplomatic efforts. Um, w- since then, you know, we've had two months of everybody staying at home. We've had this pandemic wreak havoc on many of our major cities. Uh, cities across the world have been shut down. Cities, countries. What tell us how this pandemic has shaped uh, U.S. diplomacy, and how can we use diplomacy going forward to help combat pandemics like this in the future? Well, <laughs> this is a podcast about Dallas, but one you've got to have leaders in Washington that understand whether it is a war, whether it is an economic calamity, or whether it is a pandemic that no one dreams of, the world looks to the United States for leaders, for, for leadership. One, because we have one of the, 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 the strongest pharmaceutical medical infrastructures in the world. And sadly, I think one of the things that's disturbed so many of us is the refusal of this administration to coordinate with the rest of the world. Uh, this pandemic has laid bare uh, the reality that because of so much that we take for granted, but because the fact that air travel is is so available to people all over the world now, because we are connected globally by commerce, there is no country safe from a disease that can be carried by airplanes or ships or people who go back and forth to see their relatives at any part of the way. So one, we realize the world has shrunk because of transportation, because of commerce. And so anything that impacts any of us in one part of the world impacts all of us. As my, as my former pastor <laughs> at St. Luke uh, Community United Methodist Church, Zan Holmes would say, uh, you, you know, we now know you can take no comfort from the hole in my end of the boat. So we have to all be engaged. But frankly, I think it's going to change. It's going to take a change in understanding and perhaps philosophy uh, of our leadership in Washington in order for us to have the global impact we want because, it, 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 you know, and I'm, I'm trying not to be too partisan, but, but I mean, this president uh, clearly has um, a, and a leaning and intent as, in, as he defines America first. It sadly often means America alone. And so whether it's, in terms of trade and backing away from our global economic relations in terms of NATO, in terms of climate change, this is yet again, uh, we've seen the administration miss an opportunity 
to not just participate, but lead a coordinated effort uh, to come up with a solution to this. Uh, because it, it has, I mean, we've all seen the news. I mean, this has impacted Europe and Asia and Latin America and Africa and North America. And so I, I, I think all of us would hope there could be a coordinated response to this. But I frankly have no reason to believe that's going to happen um, from what the, the, the current uh, mode of operation of this administration. Uh, well, Ambassador, b before we get ready to close out, I, I know you follow uh, events, and I know that you're aware on, on last Friday, the hashtag I run with mod was, was trending. Uh, people were out uh, honoring the birthday of a young man who was shot and killed in Georgia while he was on a jog, Ahmad Aubrey. And from, from where you sit, I just wanted to know if you had any, any thoughts and reflections of, of what we've seen uh, regarding that in Georgia. Um, I, I could not run because I was just curled up fetal in my closet crying after I saw that video and, and I couldn't help it, but I picked up the phone and called two of our closest friends that we were having dinner with the night we learned about the verdict from the George Zimmerman case for the murder, the execution of Trayvon Martin. Uh, and these are two of our closest friends were godparents to their, one of their sons, and one of the things uh, he and I both said, said our fear was having a legal standard uh, that you could shoot a young black male because you feared for your life was literally just open season on black males. And uh, it would take a much longer <laughs> discussion of this. But going back to my the beginning of our conversation about me having grown up in Jim Crow, and, you know, all of the inhumanities and indignities that people of color, but particularly black people in this country, uh, have endured. And for the most part, once we were granted our freedom, whether it was after emancipation or it was after civil rights, all we've ever wanted to do was be left alone. Let us go to work. Let us apply the same um, efforts to our dreams for our kids as everybody else. And I just... I mean, there are times, Sean, I just get it. I don't understand what the fear is. And um, sad, yesterday was Mother's Day, and we obviously celebrated uh, Matrice and our mothers, but we just couldn't help but think how horrific that day was for the, the mother and father of Ahmad Avery. And, I mean, I hope others will see that video. I hope it's not just people of color that speak to that. Uh, but uh, I mean, this is one I don't have, you know, a thoughtful response. I just, I'm, I'm more afraid for young black males now than I've ever been. Uh, but perhaps that video will shock the nation's conscience the way John Johnson's courageous decision in the fifties uh, to publicize the picture of Emmett Till's body after he was so brutally beaten to death. Maybe that video um, will force us into a conversation uh, about humanity and just respecting one another. And um, uh, it, just, it just breaks my heart. And I, I can only say what I said. I did an, an edit. I was invited to do an op-ed for Time magazine after the, the terrible shootings in Dallas. Um, uh, of those 
police officers in downtown Dallas back in 2017. And the one thing I said is, look, let's at least accept the fact that all of our, all any parent wants when we see our kids, our husbands, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers walk out the door, whether it's to go to work or do, just let's at least agree everybody ought to come home safe. And if the pretense for this shooting was they thought he'd robbed somebody, well, call the police. Now, we know he didn't. We know that's bullshit. But because you believe somebody did something doesn't give you license to hunt them from the back of a truck um, the way they did. And I, I couldn't help. I know I'm going on, but I just I, I experienced so many emotions. You know, I don't know why I thought that in this, even in the state of Texas that has this ridiculous you know, adherence to the Second Amendment at all costs. The only animal you can even hunt from the back of a pickup truck is a feral hog because they're wild and they do so much destruction. And the fact that these men felt comfortable um, shoot, tracking down and executing a human being, um, you much less a young black male, um, says how far we are to go. Um, but I'm hopeful that, you know, the next generation will see that, understand that for the evil that it is, because that's that's evil. Uh, and understand that, I guess, as the Bible teaches us and always has, the only way for good to overcome evil is the angels better be organized better than the, the mafia. Well, Ambassador, uh, we certainly appreciate your thoughts uh, on, on everything. If our listeners want to want to find you and follow you, where where can we uh, direct them? Um, I think I'm on Twitter. My, my daughters have done all my social media. I know I'm on Twitter at, at Ron Kirk 16 or something like that, but I don't post very much. Um, and I... Um, but when you do, though, but when you do, it's, it's good. So I do follow you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, look, I've enjoyed talking with you all. And again, hope you'll you'll continue to be safe and be well and look forward to seeing you all when this is over. Thanks so much, Ambassador. We really appreciate it. All right. Okay, guys. We'll be Thank back you. after this quick break. Welcome back, Deconstructing Dallas. Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. Man, what a awesome, amazing conversation with Ambassador Kirk. I, 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 we, we could have, and I think he could have gone on a little longer, but uh, I, I think we got a lot to unpack there for folks who get a chance to listen. Yeah, he's, he's a passionate guy, and uh, you know, maybe we, I'd like to share the link uh, to his to his op ed to see uh, you know for our listeners. We can maybe share it in the uh, the episode notes, but. Um, yeah, very very interesting stuff, and and uh, appreciate him coming on. Now, last week we had Carlos Aguilar on the podcast from Texas Central, um, an, an initiative also that 
Ambassador Kirk is involved with. But uh, first off, thanks to everyone who's listened to that episode. We we already, after just a week, that episode's been downloaded. Um, I think it's already third in, in this latest run that we've had. And it's been since the summer of last year that we've had so many folks download an episode. But Texas Central had a big, big win last week. They, they definitely did. It was nice right out, you know, on the heels of our podcast to get the news that uh, uh, the 13th Court of Appeals here in Texas uh, ruled in favor of Texas Central and uh, found that Texas Central is both a railroad company and an interurban electric railroad. This is, this is basically um, a, a huge hurdle for the company. You know, this has been a four-year-long court battle. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's some land, some property owners along the the proposed route, uh, and um, it, it's it's been quite a quite a long laborious battle. But uh, you know, they they are officially a a railroad uh, according to the court. So, uh, well, my my takeaway from that, Ryan, is that apparently the 13th Court of Appeals listens to deconstructing Dallas. So <laughs> I'll, I'll just take all the credit for that. Yeah. Yeah, please take all the credit that uh, that you deserve, Sean. All right, man. Well, uh, again, we want to uh, thank everyone for listening to this episode. We will be back very soon. As you can see, now that we've got uh, our process going, we are on a roll. So we want to thank everyone who's listening. This is an Allen Media production, Deconstructing Dallas with Ryan Tremble and Sean Williams. We want to thank our owners, Mary Woodley. We want to thank our owner, Jennifer Pascal. We want to thank our entire team at Allen Media. And of course, we want to thank our listeners. If you want to find us on social media, you can catch me on Twitter at Sean P. Williams, S-H-A-W-N-P Williams. You can catch him at rtremble15. Uh, we will have another guest coming up really, really quickly. Uh, another great guest. We are in a good groove, so please stick with us. Download our episode. Uh, make sure you go to Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever your platform is of choice. Make sure you like, make sure you uh, share this with other folks. Feel free to leave us a review as well. And we will be back on the other side. Again, this is Sean Williams, Ryan Trumbull, Deconstruction Dallas. Adios. Adios.